0: Our song to you, Lord, this morning. We lift everything up to you, Lord, God. Meet us here this morning, Lord. Yes, yes, Lord. We ask you that this morning we may sing worship and proclaim your greatness. Lord, that we, in light of what you have done for us, we're not that important, but you have made us important. You have given us worth. The great God of the universe has given us new meaning to life, new identity. Father, we ask You, Lord, as Your Word becomes the truth of our lives, as Your Word enters into us through the power of Your Spirit, Lord, that we may remember the greatness of God, the greatness of God, the One who made the heavens and the earth, the One, Lord, who sent His Son for us, the One, Lord, who is worthy of all worship and all praise. your name we pray and we thank you, Lord, that we can gather here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen, you may be seated. Amen. Thank you all uh, for joining us online. Grateful for the worship this morning. And I invite you to just grab your Bibles if you're with us here following along. And go with us to the Gospel of John. And before we we really start this morning, I do want to give... Uh, just one announcement. Uh, just reminder that we have a special kids uh, Zoom online meeting uh, later today at 4:30. Uh, if you have, if your children have been involved here at the church, um, uh, Chrisya, Katie, Shaw, I think are going to have a little, a little thing for the children to to have a fellowship time together at 4:30. We're going to send out an email again with the link. I know that uh, things can get uh, mixed in uh, with all that's going on. A lot of more email work, but uh, we wanted to. Um, we invite you that you're able to join us. And we're excited about more things that the Lord is doing uh, in, in our church. And we're looking forward to updating you uh, with that as the time goes on. Uh, nevertheless, we do want to gather together and worship the Lord through the Word of God. And so, as I mentioned to you, please go with me to uh, the Gospel of John, Chapter 1. And this morning, we're going to continue our series in uh, John, if you know, we, we're moving along through the Gospel of John. It's going to take a while, uh, but at the very least, we want to move as best as we can through the logic of the text, through the, what Jesus is in the text, how Jesus is portrayed in the text, but more importantly, how the Bible changes us. And the way we do that is by looking at the Bible in its context and um, how it was written for the people in a particular time and for us. Today and so let me let me begin by reading our passage for this morning and it's John chapter one, verse fourteen, uh, verses fourteen through eighteen. So uh, why don't you join me as we read God's word? All right. Uh, and so it's, it, it says this: The Word became flesh, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, and the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Verse 15, John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Verse 16, Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. And so this morning, we're planning to have, if you're connecting with us online, we're trying to have slides for you, which will help you with slides on. Hopefully, that will help you a little bit, um, getting engaged with with the scriptures. It'll help you as you're there with your family to read along. But these are the verses we're going to go through this morning, okay? And so let me, let me begin by saying that during the time of John, and I hope I don't, I don't, you know, I don't scare you here when we talk about begin with here, but, but at the time of John, uh, there was a heavy influence um, during his writing, and during the first century in particular, uh, from Greek philosophy. Uh, it's worldview in the ancient world. I, okay, today, if you're a really rich billionaire, you know what you do? You go to the coast of Greece, And you just sit back on your yacht, right? And you get the the rays hit you. And that's what rich people do today. Back then, rich billionaires would spend their time thinking about the world's ethical and philosophical and religious issues. What is the meaning of life? What is truth? What is the the meaning of everything that we see? Christianity was developed in a uh, Greek uh, thought society. It had Jewish roots. Based on the Old Testament, it had a Jewish Messiah, but it was developed within a context of a Greco-Roman world. Okay, Think about the way we have our own worldview, if we could call it that. All of us have a, have a framework of the way we view life. There's a reason why there's been times where I've sat with parents and they've told me, my daughter is 18 years old, she's an adult. She gets to do whatever she wants because she's an adult. And in my head, I'm going, where do we get that, right? I mean, is there a law that we read that somewhere? I mean, where do I find that, those rules? Just the way we think. We've been brought up that way. There's a worldview uh, in the way we grow. If you ask uh, somebody, uh, you know, that probably um, went to school the 60s, 70s, or 80s, they'll tell you, what do you mean school loans? Nobody had school loans back then. At least that's what I hear. But now, I mean, how much student loan debt do you have? I mean, you just got to have it unless you can't graduate. Because the, the way we view the world grounds our actions. All of us in some way have a worldview and it was no different in the first century. Uh, early Christians had the choice of either continuing Jewish intellectual practices or uh, embrace uh, platonic uh, philosophical views of the world. Now, of course, you may say, what does this have to do with the Gospel of John? Well, there was an impact of how they viewed the flesh and how they viewed the body. Let me give you an example. So in the first century, if you were to talk about the body, your physical body, there would be a belief that would say that the body does not matter. In fact, Plato and other guys during the time of John's writing would say that the essence of a person, what makes you a person, it's what's inside of you, that that soul, that, that person, that identity inside of you. The body was simply a carcass, a shell that when you die, it just dies. He doesn't come back and what will live forever is your person. They would, they would say that God was pure reason, intellect, uh, you know, far from flesh or human characteristics. Now, the second largest religion in the world, Islam. Let me bring this here. Islam believes that God is unknowable, impersonal. Islam states in, in the Quran 1.12, 1.4 says that he is wholly distinct, unique, indivisible, completely separate, impersonal. Now, in other words, nothing at all in creation compares to Allah. Now, what does this have to do again with John? Well, because um, for us, we were not made for impersonal relationships. We were made for personal fellowship with the triune God of Scripture. The ultimate purpose of our life is for relationship with God. Most of our issues, most of our Dissatisfactions, discontentment has to do with a breaking of relationship with our Creator. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, a document developed in the 17th century to, to help train and equip church members, uh, has this as its first question. What is the chief end of man? And if you have your notes online, and, and here you can look at that here, and it says this, that man's chief end, meaning the purpose of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Okay, The ultimate end of man is to enjoy God. In other words, our ultimate end is to enjoy personal fellowship with our Savior in Christ through the cross. And so in these just four verses, we see the culmination of God's plan. God desired this from the very beginning. We see God dwelling with his people without restrictions, without boundaries or limitations. Why? Because he comes in the flesh. Every time there was an appearance of God of glory in the presence of God, there was great fear. There was great recognition that the, the people were sinful and God was holy. People did not just fall on their face and go, wow, this is amazing presence. They would fall on their face and be fearful of God because you could not stand before the presence of God and live. So the question is, how can there be relationship without God's presence? Well, there can't be, which is why, in Christ, God has made this possible for us. Um, As you look again at these four verses, it's really, it's not just about thinking about Jesus coming in the flesh. I mean, that's a beautiful thing. It's a Christmas sermon. But it has to do with relationship, that God desired a relationship with you and me. And he did this by sending his Son in the fullness of his glory. And I write this, and, and the main point really this morning is that the glory of God was being manifest in the life, person, and work of Christ to give us relationship with Him. Amen? See, we cannot have relationship with God apart from Christ coming in fullness of glory. What is that glory? Is it the glory that Moses saw? Is it the glory that uh, Isaiah was so fearful about in Isaiah 6? Yes, yes, and yes. And there can be no relationship apart from beholding the glory of Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. If we want relationship with Christ, we must have the glory of Christ. If we want to feel God's presence, if we want to encounter His presence, we must behold the glory of Christ. Uh, let me pray as we begin. Father, uh, I pray that uh, this morning, uh, if we feel far away from You, if we are just uh, not feeling Your presence or feeling disconnected from You, uh, especially in the season of quarantine, of being away from community, Father, I pray that these passages may remind us just how great of a work you have done uh, to bring us near to you. That, That we're really not far away from you. It's about us posturing ourselves to see your glory rightly, to see you correctly, and not the way we want to see you. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit may enlighten us, and that, Lord, you and you alone may receive the glory as we see your scriptures for what they are really the the power of truth and the power of of freeing us from ourselves, from sin. In in Jesus' name, uh, amen. Amen. Look again at at verse 14 then. It says here, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That that word dwelling actually means to pitch a tent. For those who are familiar with the Old Testament passages, pitching a tent, I I don't know if you know a little bit about the the Old Testament. There was a tent in the Old Testament. And that tent was called the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a temporary sanctuary built by the Jewish people in the wilderness after they left uh, uh, Egypt, after their captivity uh, uh, by Pharaoh. It was the place where God would make His presence known in their wilderness wanderings. Okay, Moses would say, Lord, wherever you're going, we want you to go with us. And the Lord said, yeah, I'm going to go with you. So I'm going to pitch this tent and I'm going to dwell in that place. Uh, uh, let me read to you Exodus 25, 8 and 9. And it says this, Then have them make me a sanctuary and I will dwell among them. Same word that we're seeing here in the New Testament. Dwell among them. Make this This tent, this tabernacle, and all its furnishings exactly uh, like the pattern that I will show you. In other words, you could call the tabernacle this, the dwelling place of God. Okay, The dwelling place of God. The the, the tabernacle uh, was the center of the camp. Uh, It represented the presence of God. It was there that it it would hold the Ark of the Covenant, where the Ten Commandments would be in, in this little box, golden box, uh, Aaron's staff Moses' staff would be there and the, in the uh, Ten Commandments it was the focus of worship and I think I have a graphic uh, you see that there it was in the center of all the tribes it was uh, the focus of worship but, but here's the most important thing it was not just where the law came from it's not just where they did sacrifices the tabernacle was where the presence of God dwelt think about that where is God? oh he's right there was in that tent. It was a place of great fear. It was a place of great, uh, uh, you know, uh, where people would ponder, what is God like? Well, uh, turn with me to Exodus 40. Exodus 40, uh, verses 34 to 38. Exodus 40. Okay? And I'm just going to read this here because it's important to understand that the glory of God was in this place. Apart from all the other things, the glory of God was in this place. And it says this, verse 34. Exodus 40, 34 to 38. Then the cloud covered the tent, and the glory of God filled the tabernacle. So the glory of God, it was was known through the cloud. Okay, verse 35. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of God filled the tabernacle. 36. In all the travels of the Israelites, uh, wherever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. Verse 38. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and, by, and fire was by the night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Okay, now can you just picture this? I mean, you're traveling 40 years around this desert place called the wilderness and you're grabbing this tent and you're going and you're moving. Put God in the center. That's, all on, that's a lot of work. But what it represented, it was that God was in the midst of its people. The fire, the cloud, natural elements represented God's presence in this tent-like structure. Moses would encounter the presence of God, uh, you know, even before this, this dwelling place of God, the Shekinah glory of God uh, in an approachable light so much so that there was a time where Moses encountered God uh, after the people of Israel had uh, rebelled against God and they worshipped the golden calf. God had to make uh, the Ten Commandments again, a second time. And then Moses goes up to the mountain. Moses comes down with this shining figure and he has to cover his face from the glory of God because he was shining so brightly. So when you think about glory of God, we're thinking what? We're thinking bright light. We're thinking cloud, fire, these crazy type of uh, uh, supernatural ways in which God communicates himself in which man cannot exist, in which man cannot dwell. Well, look again at at verse 14. Look look what John says. We We have seen what? His glory. The glory of who? The one and only Son who came from the Father. And he tells us what this is full of grace and full of truth. Think about this. He says, we are beholding the glory of God, the glory of the only one, and here's the glory, full of grace, full of truth. Okay? This isn't a fire nor a cloud or blinding light, but the glory of God is made manifest in fullness through grace and truth. Now, this is counterintuitive, I mean, I mean, because that's just not the way the glory, the glory, when you think of glory, you think of superstars, movie stars. I mean, that's, that's the glory. But here we see full, full through grace and truth. Jesus perfectly blended two of the most important qualities of the divine nature of God and displayed them into his human personality. And I have this on my notes here, and I want to read this. This is the radiance of the glory of God killed men. Now the manifest glory of the Son granted us grace and truth to man. Amen? God's glory in this way saves us. And so what is the fullness of grace and truth? What what do we mean by that? Because that's what they're saying. We're beholding the glory of God and the glory is this fullness of grace and truth. Okay, let's read what John says, verse 15 through 17. Um, It says this, John testified concerning him. This is John the Baptist, the witness. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Verse 16, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in the place of grace already given. Or grace upon grace, if you have the ESV, I think. Uh, 17, for the glory was given through Moses, grace in truth. There we go again. You see that grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, after a brief note on John, which we're going to dive into uh, next couple of weeks, after the affirmation that in fact Jesus was a pre-existing Word of God who was with God, here's what John tells us: that from uh, from the fullness, from this fullness of grace and truth, from the glory that comes out of Jesus, we have received grace upon grace. And really, if you take the actual tense of the, of the verb, which is going and going, it's uncompleted. It keeps going. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Upon, I mean, think about the glory of God, right? Remember when Moses came off the mountain, he was shining so much that people could not take that. Now put it in the context of grace, right? But the grace of God shines forth in the life of Jesus from grace upon grace upon grace there is unending grace overflowing from the glory made manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. It is not just the, 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 grace, um, the, the, the grace that he gave us, but it is that he was grace in himself. When one supply of grace is exhausted, another is available. When we think about the glory of Jesus, what is the glory of God? We think about the glory of Jesus, and what is that? Or is the glory of his unending grace? Is how he displayed grace. We all know to experience God, but we must do it in his terms. And in this side of, on this side of Calvary, we do it through Christ and his unending grace. Go with me to Exodus 33. And, and I made a point of this before when I mentioned um, Moses' uh, desire or meeting with God. Exodus 33. We're going to read verses, just two verses. Uh, but I think these are well worth us um, reading together. Okay, So Exodus 33, verse 18 and 19. And so here's Moses and the longing of every single person, like we mentioned, we want to dwell with God. We want to be with God. So God provides a way in, uh, through the tabernacle. But, we're, we, but we need something that's, that's, that's ongoing here and now. And so here is Moses' cry, the cry of every single person in the world that, 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 that's looking for truth. And it says this. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, watch this, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And then he says this, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, do you think this is the glory that Moses was expecting? Think about it. Moses had seen the Red Sea open. Moses had seen the burning bush. Moses had been in the earthquakes. He had heard God's thunderous voice. He had seen shining light. Yet this is how God manifested his glory to Moses. He made it to the nature of his person. In other words, even look at at verse 18. Sorry, 19. He says, I will cause my goodness in front of you and I will proclaim my name. His goodness, his mercy, his, his compassion. At the center of how God communicates His glory is the nature of His grace, the nature of His person. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. When John says glory, he's not looking at the tabernacle. He's not looking at Solomon's temple or Herod's temple in Jerusalem. But he's looking at Christ, the new dwelling place of God in the world. This is most clearly made manifest in Christ's work at the cross. If you want to talk about grace, what is the fullness of grace? Where is grace seen? Well, grace is seen at the cross of Christ where he gave all for us. And th- again, this is counterintuitive. And as I was preparing this week, I just go, this is wrong. Like this is the glory of God. It's too simplistic. This is the glory of God. No, he can't be. I mean, I want something more than this. But John says it's the fullness of His grace. Grace upon grace. See, the cross appears to be nothing better than a foolish exercise in suffering. For those who we we preach to and we communicate the cross, it might be like, that's the glory? That's grace? I mean, I need more than that. I need to feel good. I need to experience something outside myself. It was, in Jesus' time, it was a curse to die by it. It was a terrible shame to die by it. It was associated with murderers, thieves. Paul would say that the message of the cross is foolishness. But watch this. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, But for those who believe, right, it is the power of God. It is the power of God. And so there is no greater glory displayed to the world than the grace of Christ through the cross of Christ. Amen? Uh, Look at verse 17. John adds this. For the law was given... Through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Again, again, Jesus adds that the reason why this glory is better than the one given in the temple is simply this: Jesus is greater. If you want a summary of these four verses, just, just Jesus is better than anything else in the world. because that is exactly what he's saying. He's putting Moses here, Law and Moses, and he says, Law and Moses, grace and truth in Christ. Here's Christ. Here's how we have seen the true glory. Moses did not see the fullness of the glory of Christ. Uh, only in Christ do we see that. See, in the law, and this might be new to you if you're watching here, but when you think of the law, the law represents the ten commandments God gave in the, in the book of Exodus. But there are also the, uh, the moral standards in all the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Okay? And all those five books, there's a lot of regulations of how to uh, walk holy before God, how to atone for your sin. That's the book of the law. All of those and the Ten Commandments in particular. And the only people who had access to the truth of that, the only people who could truly have access to God were were Moses the priests and all those who would present sacrifices uh, for themselves and for others. This is no small thing. God provided grace through the law. Yet, it wasn't the fullness of grace and truth. Here's what I mean: the moment that Adam and uh, Adam and Eve sinned, you know what should you know what should have happened? They they should have been destroyed. Okay, should have been done. Us as human beings would no longer have life. But you know what God did? Grace. He 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 gave them a way to live. He he told them, "Listen, I, you're gonna you're gonna be cursed, but you're not gonna be out." For the people of Israel it was the same thing. People of Israel had disobeyed. They had been uh, held captive by by Egypt. When they came out, they were disobedient. Yet the Lord gave them grace and He provided the Ten Commandments. So there is grace in the law of God in what He gave. Yet it wasn't the fullness of grace. And that's exactly what we're reading in these verses. There was grace and truth in Moses, there was grace and truth in the Ten Commandments. But here in Christ, we have the fullness. Of God's grace. Everything God is in His grace is now being displayed in the person of Christ. Uh, to make this point, go to uh, Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3, uh, verses 2 through 6. Okay? Hebrews, Hebrews 3. And it says this. Talking about um, Christ. This, I mean, if you want to under, underline anything in your Bible, man, this is a great passage to think about Christ and, uh, and Moses. It says, he was faithful to the one who appointed him just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. So here you go, Moses and Jesus, both faithful guys. Awesome. Verse 3, Jesus has been found worthy of what? Greater honor than Moses. Just as the builder of the house has greater honor than the house itself. For everyone, uh, for everyone, for everyone, everyone's house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all of God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. And here's a big one, verse 6. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are His house. If indeed we hold firmly together to our confidence uh, and the hope in which we glory here's the point the servant can by his commission administer the law in the house right i mean when you go to my house i mean you know if i have a maid if I have a servant whoever it might be they can do certain things in my house that that i allowed them to do but the son my little david my little girls they could do no wrong they get freedom to do whatever they want Okay, because the Son is the ruler of the house, can act on behalf and ultimate authority, and surpasses the authority of the servant. This is why Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it say this, but I tell you this. He's greater than Moses because grace and truth was made manifest in the person. While Moses said truth and grace, While Moses heard about God, while Moses experienced the grace of God, Jesus was the grace of God. And that glory was what we have in the person of Jesus Christ. So what do we mean by grace? How did Jesus embody grace in the world? What is this glory of grace and truth? Well, he welcomed sinners, tax collectors. He ate with them. He welcomed foreigners. He welcomed children. He prayed with them. He sat with them. He saved his disciples from death. He saved a murderer on the cross. And ultimately, he showed us grace on the cross. He made it fully manifest what grace looks like upon the cross. How did Jesus embody truth? Well, he condemned liars, hypocrites. He talked about hell more than heaven. He called his uh, disciples to carry their own cross. That is hard truth. He prophesied judgment on Jerusalem for their unrepentant hearts. He obeyed the law to the T. He set the standards. They uh, demanded everything from their followers, even their own life. That truth is what he embodied by living it himself. In contrast contrast to Moses, the glory of God was isolated on a mountain, on a tabernacle. But now it was embodied in the life displayed in Jesus. He was greater than Moses, because he came in the flesh, and the glory of God was decentralized. Can you guys say amen for that, the glory of God? We don't have to go to a temple. Okay, We we don't have to go to a place to get touched by God. I don't have to go to to this person to tell me, I need the glory of God. Can you just pray for me, because I need the glory? Jesus, in him, was the glory made manifest of full grace and full truth. And I think this is where John wants to continue in verse 18. He wants to make the superiority of Jesus greater than Moses. Read verse 18 with me. No one has ever seen God. Okay, Think think about Moses. You see Moses here? You guys picturing that? It's It's still going back to Exodus 33. But the one and only Son who is himself God is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. I want you to just... Picture these four verses as John looking back at the Exodus, looking back at the tabernacle and looking at the people of Israel, still longing for the, for the temple, still longing for the presence of God in the temple. And just John saying this, no, 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 it's in Christ. The new glory of God is in Christ. And think about how often we can, we can like forget that or we can think um, nothing clearly about where God is. We can can look for God in in these things, in in these aspects of our lives, in people, in our own emotional turmoil, and we can go, I need to find Jesus. I need to find God's answer. I need God to help me. Well, all the while, He did that at the cross, and He's made manifest today in us through the power of this Holy Spirit. And we can come to Him and say, Father, I don't know where you are, but I know that you're there. I don't know what to do, but I know that you're listening. St. Moses cannot see the face of God, or else he would die. None of us could see the true glory of God, but we can see it in the person of Christ through his manifest glory of grace and truth. The invisibility of God was made visible in the Son of God. The cross made this possible. The message of the gospel, the good news, is that we have access to God. The same God that Moses said, show me your glory, we can say, show me your glory. And God showed the glory upon that day in Golgotha. Jesus is the very essence of God. According to this verse, um, uh, his purpose was to come to the earth, to tell us and explain God the Father to us. It says there, verse 18, he has made him known. Nobody knew God. And finally, in Christ, we actually know what God is like. He is full of grace, full of truth. Just as he told Moses, right, a thousand thousand years earlier, I will show you who I am. My compassion, my goodness will pass through you. That is who God is. He was there when you and I were created. He was there. This is Jesus in the tabernacle. Jesus was there in Solomon's great temple. He was there in Herod's temple. But now he's no longer in temples. He is today in the flesh sitting at the right hand of God, being made manifest through His Holy Spirit in us today. He did this to display the glory of God in our midst. We, in fact, are crying out, show me your glory, show me your glory. I want more of you. Inside, there's a hunger for something greater, and it is ultimately to enjoy God, to experience His glory. But we cannot cry out to wrong gods or to false gods. Through the cross, we cry out to it. Christ has granted us grace upon grace and truth. This is the glory of God. What is the glory of God? The glory of Christ. The glory that is in our midst for our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Where there was no relationship possibility. Where there was no unity. He did not want us. There was nothing in us that He would want us. But His Son came to give us this grace. To give us freedom. And to give us restoration. And there can be no relationship without the glory of God, without truly experiencing the glory of God, which was granted to us through Christ's death in his life um, while on the earth. So how do we apply this this morning as we we finish? What we need to hear this morning is that there's nothing for us to do to attain the glory of God. Done. (laughs) There's nothing for us that we need to do in order for us to touch the glory of God. We do not have to hide from the glory of God. We do not have to, uh, you know, do anything. Uh, The law is fulfilled. God does not need more of our sacrifices to make His presence more real to us. There is no temple to build. There is no mantra to repeat. There is no program to follow. There is no behavior to mimic in order for you to have some type of glory of God thing going. No, no, no. All you need to know this morning is to know Christ. Isn't that simple? Do you see how the gospel is good news for us? Because when you, you don't know Christ and you put all these rules for people and you go, okay, here's what you need to do to, to know God. All the while, all they need to know is to know Christ. God is known through the person of Christ. And it is the glory that shines through the cross so perfectly that displays the nature of God. Who is God? Well, he is grace and truth. Who is grace and truth? He is Christ. What else is there? There is nothing else but the glory of Christ. You'll be asking more than Moses asked. But yet we have all that in the person of Jesus Christ. There isn't more glory apart from the deeper revelation in our hearts and the life and the life that Christ lived and his payment upon, upon us in Calvary. Now, I'm not saying there shouldn't be a, affections being uh, born from this reality, I think that's what it's supposed to develop. We're supposed to have emotions that break down when we hear, when we encounter the Holy Spirit in this manner. But the question is, is the cross enough to encounter God? Is the grace and truth that Jesus manifested in the person of Jesus, is that enough for you to get hungry for God? Is that enough for you to seek out a life after God? Is that enough for you to go to your knees and say, Father, I want to run hard after you. I am hungry for you. Or is the cross of Christ, is the grace and truth that Christ has given us simply not enough? There is just more that we want. You that have failed God and you feel like you need restoration, uh, I just want to I, I encourage you that, that Jesus is here, that Jesus listens to us, that there is not a ma- ma- mantra to repeat, that there is not a program to follow, that you can today have this relationship with God. Maybe you've walked away from God. Well, you can return in grace to to, to Christ and encounter the fullness of his glory. Maybe in this quarantine time, maybe you feel discouraged. Maybe you feel, I just feel dry, man. Just the Bible is not sticking, man. My my worship time is just not what it is. Um, I want to tell you that the problem is not with God. (laughs) Amen. The problem is never with God. The problem is in our hearts. The problem is with us putting the right expectations and asking God through his Holy Spirit to birth again a longing to cry, show me your glory and the glory that he displays at the cross, the one of fullness of grace and truth. Amen? Let me pray. Father, um, I ask you this morning that we remember, Lord, that we are um, in, that we're indebted to you. that, that, Lord, you didn't have to give us everything, but you, in fact, give us everything. Father, remind us today of the beautiful glory that shines forth through your sacrifice. Father, remind us today of our great need to encounter your glory, for us, Lord, to cry out for hunger, for us to be desperate again, to fall in love, Lord, again with you, To go back to our first love. Love to find pleasure in prayer. To find pleasure in the word of God. To find pleasure in ministering to you from our home. Father, I pray for those who are struggling during this uh, pandemic. Father, I pray there may be a hunger again. A Moses type of cry that's only fulfilled in Christ. Show me your glory, Christ. Show me, God, who you are. I need your presence. I need you, God. Father, I pray as a church that we may come back for this even more hungry for God. Desperate for your presence. Desperate for the cross. Desperate to do your works on this age, in this age. Desperate to be people of grace and truth desperate lord to encounter jesus to feel your presence for our affections to come out forth into love for others into love for our families for our husbands for our wives for our children that the grace of god may overflow and transform our lives father i pray that that the glory that was there from the beginning may be here in us today and that we may not be looking to build it by ourselves, but the Lord, your Holy Spirit, like the wind, bring it. Bring it in whatever way it wants. Bring revival to our hearts, Lord, and renewal of the truth of the message of Christ as we worship apart but united at home. Thank you, Lord. We thank you. We ask you for your spirit to bless us as we worship. Amen.